You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Psalm 73, verse 1, I invite you to follow along as I read. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And so I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom I have in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you be pleased to instruct us from your word this morning. That you be pleased, O Lord, to open up these words Some of the phrases, Lord, do give us difficulty in understanding. Father, we pray that, Lord, you help us to understand these things. Help us to apply them properly, O Father. And, Lord, may we gain wisdom from your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Our psalmist begins in verse 1 with a conclusion. It's It's a conclusion that he has reached. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And it's a conclusion that he has reached through a time of uh, painful struggle. I would say painful. I could add a couple more qualifiers to it. It'd be a time of anguish, a struggle that, that had to have been very agonizing for him. I could add another qualifier to it. It had to be a struggle that was frightening, as we're going to see um, it was a, a time uh, of uh, temptation, if you will, uh, that the psalmist had found himself in. And I keep using the word time. We don't know how long of a time it was. So I think maybe there's a better word that we could use, and that would be wor- uh, uh, the word season. The word season. And we do enter through these times uh, 
in our pilgrimage here in this world where we do find times and seasons, if you will, of temptation, don't we? Where your heart seems to be to the left or to the right, and you know it. Uh, and here we're getting a glimpse of uh, the heart of probably Asaph. If you look at the title there, it says a psalm of Asaph. The most natural way to understand that would be to say that Asaph wrote this psalm. However, scholars are divided on that because it could also be interpreted that this was a psalm that was put into a collection that was titled uh, by the name Asaph. That's a possibility. Uh, it also could be a song that was uh, written and given to Asaph. That's also another possibility. Um, it's hard to be really dogmatic about that. Uh, however, um, oftentimes, that's why oftentimes when I'm preaching through the Psalms or talking about the Psalms, I'll, I'll say the singer or I'll say the psalmist. Um, but in this case, let's assume that it's Asaph who wrote the psalm. Uh, Asaph. If that's the case, we could ask ourselves just who is Asaph? And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because we have a lot of 28 verses here to get to, and I want to go through each verse. Uh, but Asaph was in charge of the singing and the temple. He was uh, uh, appointed by King David, if you will. So here's a, here's a person who's got a pretty monumental task in terms of uh, ministry. He is the one who is in charge of what is sang in worship. And believe me, it is important. Choosing the songs that we sing in worship is a very important matter. The songs that we sing, very important. Uh, I can tell you different ministries that we have visited, Tammy and I, um, after leaving we would, I mean, we get in the car and we think those songs that we that, that were being sung, some of them we didn't even sing. You know, you, you could take those songs into the Kingdom Hall, or you could take some of those songs into a Mormon context, you could take them songs anywhere and they could be sung just as heartily. Um, I don't find that glorifying to our Lord whatsoever. Uh, they had really no weight or no merit. What we sing is so important because in singing together, we store these words up in our hearts, don't we? And here, uh, Asaph, he was in charge of this. This is a huge, this is a huge uh, uh, responsibility. Now, Asaph here, he reaches a conclusion in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And I've said he reaches this conclusion by going through a frightful time, a time of anguish. Uh, what, what exactly is this frightful time? He begins to spell it out in verse 2. He says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slept. So some temptation has come into his life that was so strong, it was so powerful, that it almost caused him to fall. It's pretty significant. So when we find these seasons, when we find these things coming in our lives, let's not think that anything strange is happening to us. You know, as, as many of the commentators say on this, Calvin and many others say, listen, if this can happen to Asaph, this can happen to you and me, can it? Some of us already know. I'm preaching to the choir to many of you. You've already gone through seasons like that. And you know how powerful and how frightening they can be. Now, what exactly is the issue? Verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It was envy 
of the wicked. That was the temptation. This is a perennial temptation. This is a temptation that affects every generation, and it's a temptation that much of the world has succumbed to when we look around. Much of our society has succumbed to. You know, Tammy and our trip, you know, when you when you drive on these trips, you go on these trips, you know, what's the first thing you do when you arrive? You check in. Then what do you do? Usually you go to the grocery store, right? Uh, that's what we did. Now, when you're in the checkout aisle in the grocery store, what do you see all around us? You see these magazines. And what are these magazines flaunting? Prosperity. And I don't want to, I'm not poking fun at or make it, 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 condemning any particular individuals. But oftentimes, the acts that are on the front page of these things are not acts that are healthy for us to follow, are they? But it is that magnetism, it is that lure, it is that, it's that, it's that uh, temptation, if you will, to want to join, uh, to want to follow after this. And this is what uh, Asaph is being tempted with. I was envious of the arrogant. Some of our translations may say the foolish. I was envious of the foolish. The word could be translated foolish, arrogant. Um, in the second line, it's a different word, but they're described as the wicked. Now, let's just think about that trinity of attributes that we have there. Foolish, arrogant, wicked. It's a strong statement. In fact, there's a lot of language here that we're going to get into that's really strong language. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to soft pedal any of it. We're going to go through and treat it just the way it is. It's strong language. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes on to say in verse four, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. The NIV in verse 4 says they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. I mean, that is what makes for a good cover page, right? A, a body that's healthy and strong and really good looking. And, you know, a lot of our kids today, you know, they're trying to look like that. They're looking at these images and social media and they're trying to, they're trying to look like that. And we need to tell them, listen, nobody looks like that all the time. You know, when you're, when you're at home with the flu, you don't look like that. When you roll out of bed in the morning and you, and you walk in and you look in the mirror, I don't care who you are, you don't look like that. Our kids need to hear that. Our children need to hear that. Nobody looks like that all the time. And kids are starving themselves to death, everybody. See, this is a powerful thing. This is something, this is why it's so important. When we think about the songs we sing, this is a song we're supposed to be singing. If our children were singing this, they would they'd be storing this up in their heart, wouldn't they? This trinity of attributes. I don't remember how the, the, the uh, language goes for all these words in the, in the Psalter. But I was looking at the Psalter, I think, divides, our Psalter divides 73 up into three different uh, songs. I was toying with the idea of just leading you in singing one of them, but the, song, the sermon's already going to be long enough, so I decided not to do that. So you don't have to suffer through my voice for three minutes. Um, that'll be a blessing in itself. However, um, it's important that we store these words up in our hearts. They have no pangs until death. What's that mean? They're not, they don't have the troubles that a person has who's trying to follow the Lord in this life. As we follow the Lord in this life, we have three foes, don't we? We have three uh, uh, opponents, if you will. We have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the evil one. And it's no easy task to stand up to them, is it? It's no easy task. They don't have these problems. They don't have these pangs. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And this is kind of on the side, but... 
All the way back in 1973, Derek Kidner wrote these words. He says, quote, it's curious that to be physically sound and sleek is still viewed in some circles as the believer's birthright. I just thought, wow, he's making this comment all the way back in 1973. Oh, in some circles, people believe that a believer should have no trouble at all. You become a believer, everything's going to go wonderful for you. This is going to be, it's, you become a believer, you're not going to have any struggles. What would Derek Kidner say now? Um, how would he rewrite this if he were alive today? It'd probably be quite different, but in spite of these kinds of passages and many others where Jesus comes around and tells us, listen, you're going to have trouble in this life. If you're following me, you're going to have a lot of trouble in this life. And, and the, the, the temptation, the magnetism, the pull, if you will, is the psalmist is looking at the wicked and they're saying they don't have all this. They're not, they're not struggling. Look at verse 5. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, Calvin writes here, despisers of God are living indulgently in luxury. Did you catch that? Despisers of God are living indulgently in luxury. Now, if you're, if you're thinking through that verse right now, you might be thinking, rot row. Because what is the rest of the world? What, you know... When the rest of the world watches many of us in the West and many of us, and especially in the United States, how could they refrain from leveling that charge against us as we think about our culture? Despisers of God living indulgently in luxury. That's strong, isn't it? Again, I think if we sang these words and we had these words in our heart, I think a lot would change. They're not in trouble, verse 5, as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Look at verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. What in the world does that mean? Pride is their necklace. You know, necklaces are meant to be worn, aren't they? And there's a lot of different kinds of necklaces. I was thinking about just some of the necklaces that I bought Tammy over the years. You know, some are just for casual dress, right? And sometimes some have maybe pendants, dangling from the end of them, they're meaningful to you. And you don't necessarily care if anyone sees them. You'll sometimes wear them under your shirt, right? You just have them with you all the time because they're meaningful to you because of the person who gave them to you or because of some experience you've had in your life. But others are meant, other necklaces are meant to be seen. You know, there's, there's necklaces that go with a dress, right? And they're meant to, you know, for Christmas, I bought Tammy tickets. We bought ourselves tickets to go watch this uh, violin virtuoso play in Pittsburgh. And she, I, I got tickets, $35 a piece I got these tickets for, you know. And it's a real small venue. It's actually uh, being held in a church, actually. And it's a real small venue where we're going to be able to be really up close and, and watch this violinist play, you know. And, of course, it's an upscale kind of thing, you know. And, and, and Tammy has a couple of different dresses to choose from. And we got, for Christmas, we got her a coat to wear with the dresses. So it's just been all part of her Christmas. And I, I can't wait. And sure, she's going to have a couple of necklaces that she's going to be able to uh, put on uh, with that dress. And, and my whole point here is some necklaces are meant to, to go with dresses, right? 
And I can tell by some of the facial expressions I'm getting, especially from the lady folk this morning, they say, Pastor, you're speaking my language here. You're speaking my language. Um, but back to verse 6. Pride is their necklace. They're not even trying to hide it. To the contrary, they're parading it around. Now, through the course of this sermon, I'm just going to show my cards right now because I do not want anyone here to think I'm getting political. But I have some illustrations that are from the area and arena of politics, and I don't want anyone to think that I'm, uh, that I'm, 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 I'm cheering for the Republicans or I'm cheering for the Democrats. In fact, some of you know me really, really well know that I wouldn't cheer for either. Uh, quite frankly, I think the way that our government is running this country is an abysmal. We're $31 trillion in debt right now. If we ran our households like that, we should be in jail. It just should be unlawful to run anything like that. So enough about that. But egotism. This might sound like I'm cheering for the Democrats when I say this. Oh, no, not necessarily so, but I'm not cheering. Again, I'm not cheering for either. But egotism, parading around in egotism is not a godly trait. That's wearing pride like a necklace. To that, we could add haughty eyes. You know what I'm talking about there. That's an illustration that needs no, com no uh, commentary, isn't it? Haughty eyes. They're an abomination to God where you don't even try to hide the pride. We're all infected with pride. There's not a one of us who isn't affected with pride. But to not even try to hide it, not even to blush. To the contrary, to adorn it as a necklace, if you will. And there you see in the second line of verse 6, violence covers them as a garment. And that's because there is a relationship between the two. Kidner says too much well-being brings pride. And Calvin said that pride is the mother of all violence. You see the staircase there. You see the logical connection. Too much well-being leads to pride, and pride is the mother of violence. Maybe I could put it a simpler way. I'm not as profound as these other writers, but I will just liken it to a seesaw. We can all relate to a seesaw, right? When you're on a seesaw, when you're up, the other guy's down. And when the other guy's down, it makes us feel like we can slander him, doesn't it? It's easy to slander the other guy. And as we begin, and violence begins with slander, doesn't it? The more we slander a person and you let that continue to fester and continue to go, then it can lead to violence, can it? And it caused Calvin to say that violence, you know, violence is the mother, or pride rather, is the mother of violence. If you look at verse 7, verse 7 is not so easy. I'll confess, I spent a lot of time in verse 7. Their eyes swell out through fatness. I was really hoping to turn to the commentaries and they would, they, would, they would say, okay, what does this mean? Eyes swelling through fatness. And as I turned to many commentaries on this one, I discovered that there were a number of different ideas about this. They were all kind of similar, but I, there was a number of ideas. And what in the world does that mean? Eyes that swell out through fatness. Some, by the way, skipped it. Isn't it? I mean, you buy a commentary to get help in these things. Some skipped it. Uh, not so helpful. But you don't need to turn there. We don't have time to go flipping around too much. But just listen to these verses. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 20, I think, offers some commentary on this, where God speaking through Moses says, For when I have brought them, that is Israel, 
When I have brought Israel into the land flowing with milk and honey, that is the promised land. When I have brought Israel into the promised land, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and have grown what? Have grown fat. When they are eaten and are full and have grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And that's, and, that, and that's picked up again in the next chapter, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 15, with what is known as the Song of Moses. And Moses says, Jeshurun grew fat. Who is Jeshurun? Jeshurun's another name for Israel. Israel grew fat. Israel grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. That sounds like the language of Psalm 73, doesn't it? You grew fat, strong, sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. So here we see that this idea of fatness, it's the idea of becoming complacent. And it's an idea of actually because things are going so well, because things have become so prosperous, because we have so much going for us, that we begin to forget God so that soon we begin to despise God. We begin to despise him. I would say, I think the best line that I like is disregard for God. Fatness being an emblem of idolatry, turning from God complacently. But total disregard for God, I think, is the best way. Maybe we should stick with that for the rest of this message. This uh, posture of disregard for God is described by this fatness. Now, that's giving us some information as we go back to Psalm 73 and verse 7. Their eyes swell through fatness. Okay, I think we're starting to understand what fatness is, but what is this idea of eyes swelling um, out through fatness? What is that? Well, the second line gives us a clue. Their eyes swell out through fatness. The second line, their hearts overflow with follies. Now, what's that all about? Well, it means their hearts are overflowing. Their hearts are full of foolishness. Now, um, uh, Romans one twenty eight is a, a better-known passage where Paul says, speaking of those who have turned from God and are worshiping the creation instead of the, cre- uh, the creator, says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So here we have a connection between our posture in relationship to God and how our mind and thinking works. You see, total disregard affects our heads. So the fast track to becoming an immoral fruitcake is to disregard God. And what do we have running around today? We have what our fathers... And forefathers would say a bunch of immoral fruitcakes. And it's the logical connection. It should be no surprise to us. Again, the more familiar we get with these texts, we shouldn't be surprised by this. You disregard God, you step out of reality. Because as you step into reality, then you realize, well, there's a God watching and seeing everything that goes on. To act like he doesn't exist is a fairy tale. There's something wrong with your mind. And continually, continually, continually doing that turns you into a free cake, so much so that we have highly educated people who cannot define what a woman is. Now I sound like I'm on the Republican side. I'm not on either. But she was being examined for a high office in our land. 
And she was asked the question, what is a woman? She says, I don't know. And we can go to any elementary school in this country, and we can go in and just ask any child, what's a woman? And they would probably give some answer like, well, that's easy. A woman is my mommy. What is the cause of this? Behind this foolishness are eyes that swell out through fatness. I think we're starting to get it, aren't we? In other words, behind these foolish statements are a total disregard for God, who specifically states he's made us male and female. Why won't you answer the question? Because you've got something else going on, that's why. You've got something else going on, and it's a total disregard for God. We could say it's a lot of things, but one thing we can certainly say is it's a total disregard for God. You look at verse 8. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. You know, here's a spiritual law. Disregard for God will always lead to oppression. There's many in our culture today who say, okay, we're going to get rid of, we're going to get rid of racism, we're going to get rid of oppression, we're going to get rid of injustice. I hate to even bring, you know, you, you might even say, Rick, I haven't heard you talk about oppression and injustice in a long time. Well, it's not because I haven't wanted to. It's because these two words are abused so badly in our culture today that I've been trying to think of another way to cover it. And Quite frankly, we have to face it. As you read through the Psalms, and I hope you're all reading through the Psalms and have a steady diet of the Psalms, oppression and injustice come up all the time. Why? Because it's real. But the problem with our current culture is they're calling oppression and injustice that which isn't oppression and injustice, and they're passing over that which is oppression and injustice, and they're not calling it what it should be called to the degree that it's being so abused that it doesn't mean anything anymore. And that's, of course, by design. It makes it easier to commit it, doesn't it? But what's at the basis of this? What's at the basis of this is a disregard for God. What's at the basis of this is when we look at each other, if we disregard God, then we no longer see image bearers of God as we see one another, do we? That's the first thing that's got to go. The second thing that's got to go is we've got to depersonalize everybody. They teach that. They teach that in the military academies. Depersonalize them. It's not Mr. Hicks. It's not Mr. Mr. Adams. It's not Mr. Anderson. It's the enemy. Depersonalize him. It makes it easier to take him out. And I told you it was strong language. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Verse 9 is an expansion. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Here, they're not just shaking their fists at one another. They're actually shaking their fists at God. Here, their malice isn't just towards one another. Now their malice is towards God. Now they're saying, we will, rede we will redefine marriage in this land. What in the world gives any of us the right to redefine marriage. So this is haunting stuff, isn't it? Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. How much of that is true? A lot of the things that I'm talking about right now are things that really so many people think, that's what's the big deal? What's the big deal? What kind of world are we leaving our children you know, in the pastoral prayer, there's a reason I've been thinking about our kids so much is because I've been studying Psalm 73. What kind of world are we leaving our children? His people. What is meant by his people? Commentaries are, are divided on this, his people. We could say his people are the wicked's people. That's how some take it. And there's, there's some weight for that. But I think 
I think there's more weight for his people being God's people. Why do I think that? Because I think wicked's people are already facing them. They don't have to turn. If they were to turn, they'd be turning away from wickedness. That's the turning that they need to do. They're already facing it. It's God's people who are turning. This would be nominal, nominal believers. These would be people who are believers in name only. But it would also include Asaph, who's being tempted to turn. I think that's the context, isn't it? They turn. Why do they turn? Because God, all through his word, promises to meet injustice and oppression and wickedness with judgment. Yet, what's happening? We see these people are prospering. They're doing this stuff that would put any one of us in jail. They're getting away with it, and now they're not even really hiding it much. They're doing it openly, and they're getting not only are they getting away with it, we're watching them prosper. And the psalmist is watching that. He's watching, and they say, wait a second. How do we make sense of this? And that's what brings us to verse 11. It, does God not know what's going on? They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Maybe he's wound the world up, and he's set it over here, and he's just letting it unwind, and he's walked away, as the deists used to teach. I can understand why they would say that. It's unbiblical. As we're going to see, there's a perfect explanation here. But do you see the perplexity? Do you see what, do you see what Asaph's going through? Asaph says in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, increasing in riches. How can that be? But look at verse 13. Look at how far Asaph falls. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands and hands. See, this is why I say this is an anguish. This is an anguishing time, and it has to be a frightening time. You imagine the one who's in charge of the singing in the tabernacle is saying in his heart, all in vain I've been following the Lord. Verse 14, all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. But in verse 15, he says, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He catches himself. Verse 15 is, is, is pivotal. These thoughts are so horrible. Sometimes, sometimes we don't like to talk about it, but sometimes we have thoughts that are so horrible that we don't, we'd do best not to mention them, wouldn't we? This is a thought that's so horrible. Where Asaph's catching himself, he says, If I say something like this, I could ruin souls by saying something like this. That's what's meant in verse 15. If I, 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 if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I can't talk about this. I can't mention this. I could really do damage to somebody by mentioning this. But when he tried to figure it out, look at verse 16. When he tried to figure it out, he couldn't figure it out. It's still a perplexing problem for him. How do I figure this out? Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. I can't overestimate the importance of verse 17. What does that mean? He couldn't figure it out on his own. 
Okay, fair enough. He needs God's help, right? Where does he get God's help? It wasn't until he went to church. It wasn't until he went to church. It wasn't until I went to church that I discerned their end. More about that in a moment, but look what's said at the end of verse 17. Until I discerned their end. Verse 18, 19, and 20. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He's saying that they're going to end at the end of the day, they're going to be like a dream. Like when one wakes up and you just kind of barely remember it. And by the time the day's over, you don't even remember a thing about it. And some of these people are the most powerful people in the world. They live as if they're completely untouchable. But what does Asaph say? They're not just just going into slippery places. God has set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered. You see, this is why I say this is a a painful season for Asaph. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, look at verse 22. Here's a, here's a painful confession. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, O oh God. You hear, the, you hear the repentance in that? Lord, I was, I was like a beast towards you. Verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Why? Because you hold my right hand. Why didn't Asaph fall? One reason. Actually, there are two reasons. There's one in front of us right now. It's because the Lord had a hold of him, isn't it? And we talk like that. That's nothing new for us. We, we, we talk and we admit readily that if we'd be left to ourselves, we'd fall away this afternoon, wouldn't we? And it's God's powerful hand holding on to us that is keeping us from falling. Now, when we talk that way, it's important that we understand that there's two sides to this thing. It's really important that we understand there's two sides to this thing. When we talk that way, we're talking about God's side, aren't we? If God didn't have a hold of us, we would fall, wouldn't we? Would we make it to this? Would we make it to supper time? Some of you are smiling, not thinking so. God's holding on to you. He's holding on to me, or we would fall. That's the divine side. But there's a there's a there's a human side to this too. There's a human side to this. Look at verse 24. You guide me with your counsel. Where did Asaph receive God's counsel? In the sanctuary. Well, why did he receive God's counsel in the sanctuary? Because he went to church. That's the human side of it. What I really want us to see this morning, and what I'm trying to develop here, is the, 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 the role that worship plays in terms of our spiritual welfare, our spiritual recovery, and our growth in grace. As we gather here this morning and we sing songs, why not sit on the couch and watch on TV? 
You know, the camera, this camera, I got to tell you, this camera drives me up the wall. Some of you know that. It just drives me up the wall. It's, it's a wonderful blessing until it becomes abused. That camera is not hanging up there so that we can sit on our couches and watch the services that go on. That's not what it's there for. And if we're using it for that, we're abusing it. And, and when I think this way, I just want to pull the plug on it. And many churches have, by the way. They don't have these things for that very reason. Because in their estimation, they've revealed that, yes, it'd be a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing when you're, you're struggling with cancer and you're taking chemo treatments and you can't be around people. It's a wonderful thing to be able to see this. But I'm fearful that it's being abused by people that have bought into the lie that you don't need to go to church. What if Asaph wouldn't have went to church? He wouldn't have received God's counsel. If he wouldn't have received God's counsel, what may have happened to his soul? Of course, we're speaking hypothetically here. But someone will say, well, that's pretty scary, Rick. Yes. Look at the care that we take in trying to take care of our bodies. We go to great lengths to take care of our bodies. They just put a Planet Fitness in out there, and I'm not throwing rocks. That's a great thing. I mean, exercise is a great thing. I'm not speaking in negative that. But they've done their market studies. They recognize there's people here that would support that, or they wouldn't have put that. We've gone to the expense of putting that in there. A good businessman does his market studies or her market studies before they do this. They've done the market studies. It's because people take care of their bodies. There's a lot of people, a growing amount of people, to take care of their bodies. But what about our souls? It's hard to find anybody that cares about their soul, isn't it? Oftentimes, i got to tell you one of the frustrations in ministry is it's like I go home and tell Tammy, I said, I care more about their soul than they do. You can't get people to think about their souls. I told you this is not easy. This is strong stuff. It's, we have to preach it the way it comes to us. But there's a divine side. Asaph doesn't fall because God's holding on to him. There's a human side. Asaph went to church, and it was in church where he was spoken to. And this is why you can talk to people. You know, as I was thinking through, thinking about my ministry, you know, uh, over the years, you do this long enough, and you meet people, and you plead with them. Come, come, come. You're not going to church anywhere. Come and join us. Come be part. No, 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 no. I remember one guy. I love this guy. I love him. He said to me one time, he said, why should I go to church when I've got the best on my TV? Now, he's saying this 20 years ago. And he was referring to Dr. Stanley. I've got Dr. Stanley on TV. Why should I come to church? You know, and I, I pleaded with him. I was like, why don't you come to church? Come to church. You know, you bump into these folks. You don't see them for five years. You bump into them. You have a theological talk with them, and you're, you're amazed. They haven't grown a bit. They sound just like they did five years ago. Why is that? Because you don't grow. You might think you're growing, but you don't grow apart from the worshiping community of God because you can't serve. You know, you, you can't serve apart from the worshiping community of God. How do you serve? We're here to serve the Lord this morning, aren't we? We're here to return thanksgiving to God. We're here to publicly profess that the Lord Jesus has come to save us, haven't we? How do you do that if you're not part of the worshiping community on Sunday morning? fact is you don't. And you don't grow. You just don't grow. Not like you would if you were in the uh, service. So you don't receive this guidance in verse 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Look at that. 
you'll receive me to glory. That's the third thing here. God's strong hand is holding on to Asaph. God is guiding Asaph as he comes and worships him. And God is also going to receive Asaph into glory. How is that contrasted with verses 18, 19, and 20? If Asaph says concerning the wicked, the foolish, and the arrogant, I discern their end. What is their end? They're in slippery places. They're going to fall. They're going to be destroyed in a, in a moment. But what about Asaph? Asaph has a wonderful future. He is going to be received in the glory. We've spent a lot of time on that. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You know, let's not take that the wrong way. What does Asaph mean? Asaph has children. Does he not desire his children? Of course he desires his children. It's godly to desire your children. Be ungodly not to desire your children, right? Does he have a wife? Of course he has a wife. It'd be ungodly not to desire her. So then what's meant? That I desire nothing besides you. What's meant is everything is in its proper place. It's not that he doesn't have other desires besides the Lord. He does. But in contrast and in comparison, his desire for the Lord is so much greater than everything else that he could speak as if he has no desire for anything else. Does that make sense? So I don't want anyone leaving here thinking, I shouldn't desire my children. I should only desire... No, that's not true. Let's not, let's not distort that. I don't want anyone to distort that. But our desire for the Lord... What does Tammy need of me? She needs this of me. She needs me to love Jesus more than I love her. She needs that and requires that of me. And I need her to love Jesus more than she loves me. I want her to prosper. I want her to prosper spiritually. That's the only way she will. She needs to love Jesus more than she loves me. Does that make sense? Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. Oh, yeah. Here he was hanging and dangling what, by what seemed to be a thread. But God is the strength of my heart. Yes, he has a hold of him. Yes, he's giving him counsel. Yes, his presence is with him. But notice this word portion. I wish we had more time. And I'm watching you. I'm going to quit as soon as I think we're done. I think we still have a little bit more. We have a little bit more, right? You're looking like you have a little bit more. This idea of portion is such a rich idea. I spent a lot of time on this portion. What exactly is meant by portion, you know? And you got, you know, while we were away, we, we were away, I, I read through Joshua, read through Judges, read through first, uh, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. Um, it's just so wonderful to read and not have to worry about putting a sermon together or putting a Bible study together. Not that I mind doing it. I love to do that. But it's really wonderful just to read for your own personal profit and just to read. And, you know, in, jo in Joshua, you got the Israelites going into the promised land and all the tribes receiving their, their inheritance or their portion, if you will. But the Levites, what do they receive? Their portion is the Lord, isn't it? And what does that mean? Well, that means they're brought into the temple and they're, they're, they're going to be the ones who serve God in the temple. Now, as believers, we're all priests, aren't we? New Testament believers, we're all brought into this. But I think, and I would ask you to turn to Psalm 17 because I think Psalm 17 is really going to bring it home for us. If you turn to Psalm 17, verses 13 and 14, I think this really drives it home for us. Sometimes when we're trying to understand something, understanding its opposite helps us to understand it. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, it will here in a moment. If we look at verse 13, the psalmist is praying, Lord, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. 
Uh, I'm sorry, I'm reading Psalm 19, 13, and 14. I was just saying, this is not right. <laughs> Psalm 17, two pages turned at the same time here. Arise, O Lord, verse 13, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. So he's asking from, for deliverance from the wicked. Now, who are the wicked? Verse 14, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. Oh. Boy, this to me is an eye-opener. Oh, you know, the Bible's its best interpreter. The wicked, the arrogant, who wear pride as their necklace and wear violence as a garment, who are priding themselves every time. See, God, it's not that God is leaving them alone. It's not that God has walked away from them. Every time they get away with something, they become prouder. You ever notice that? Every time they get away from something, they say, oh, I'm untouchable. You know, oh, I, you don't mess with me. You don't mess. And they say that stuff. You can hear them in interviews where they come right out and say that stuff. But every time they're allowed to get away with something, I would submit to you that's God's judgment. The best thing that could happen to them is they get thrown in jail where they'd have an opportunity to repent, but that isn't what's given to them. It's an act of judgment that they're allowed to continue on. But when our short lives are over, what becomes of them? They're utterly swept away, swept away by terrors. And in the end of the day, that short period of nonsense that they enjoyed and savored so much was their portion. That was it. And this doesn't just apply to public figures or celebrities or whoever, uh, tyrants. It doesn't just apply to them. Let's think about the family that's two streets down from us who we love. Because Psalm 17 continues to spell that out. We won't go into that. We'll, we'll do Psalm 17 on another time. But that person and that family who has their house, they have the white picket fence, they have the children, they have the pension, they have the, the car, whatever car your choice is in the driveway, and they've got all these things and they're enjoying all these things, but they live lives, they're in complete disregard for God. They just act like he doesn't exist. They're not people that we would call wicked. The scriptures would refer to them as such. Atheism is wickedness. Practical atheism is wickedness. But we think of them as a great neighbor. They keep their grass cut. They're the ones who would look out after your house when you're gone. We think of them as great people. And measured by human standards, they are great people, but they live lives that are in disregard for God. Listen, friends, we need to preach this. Because if they die that way, that will have been their portion. While they completely disregarded God, he was so very good to them. But then that goodness stopped. Does that make sense? Back to Psalm 73, I'll wrap this up. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you, you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. A couple points of application and we'll be done. First, understanding that the wicked are currently enjoying their short-lived portion is crucial to, it's a crucial deterrent to falling into the trap of wanting to join them, isn't it? We're not going to want to join them when we see that they're enjoying their portion here and now, and it's soon going to be over. Does that make sense? 
you know, if they've sold themselves to a very short time of pleasure. Secondly, understanding the world's portion pales in comparison to the Lord's portion. Their portion is in this life, but what is Asaph's portion? He says, oh, Lord, you are my portion. You are my portion. You know, maybe this will help drive it home. The wicked have no savior. Someone say, what? They have no Jesus. They have no Savior. Well, so why is that? Because they've rejected him. That's why they don't have a Savior. And because they don't have a Savior, they do not have a portion in his love. How do you put a price on that? Whereas the believer who has so many difficulties in this life, trying to follow after God in this life, so many difficulties, one after another after another, trying to resist and mortify sin, trying to kill sin, trying to resist your flesh, trying to resist the world, trying to resist all these things, having trouble everywhere. Guess what? Your portion is the Lord. You have a Savior. He died on the cross for you in your place. What wondrous love is this? The Lord is the portion of the believer. And that's a powerful deterrent to want to follow after the wicked, isn't it? The Lord is a portion. Now, these first two points cannot be understood and embraced except by faith. So we see a third point. Only faith can bring resolve to this problem. Only faith. Only by faith. All efforts to solve injustice without faith will yield further injustice and oppression. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for Psalm 73, Lord. It so speaks to our culture as it speaks to every culture, Lord. But it so speaks to our current culture as we are, as we are in such a time of moral decay, Lord. And we know that, Lord, you've seen these times before in many other cultures. We're not doing anything new. We're not doing anything that hasn't been done many times before. As a society, we're on a reckless path. But, Father, you are God. And you are still saving souls. You're still bringing souls into your uh, into your uh, kingdom, Father. And Lord, we thank you. And Father, we pray that Psalm 73 and the wisdom that's gained from Psalm 73 would be a deterrent if there's anybody here who is finding the way of the wicked attractive, that Father, this psalm and the wisdom of this psalm would be a deterrent, crucial deterrent. And Father, I pray especially for those, Lord, who, who profess faith yet do not go to church Oh, Father, I pray that you'd be pleased to speak to them and put on their hearts and place on their hearts the importance. The first of all, the lie that it doesn't matter if you go to church. We see from this psalm that it did matter. It was crucial. But secondly, Lord, we pray that, Father, you would bring them out to be part of the visible community, that they would grow, Lord, and they would grow in faith and grow in grace, oh, Father. So, Lord, we pray, oh, Father. And, Lord, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.